in November of 2014, so a little over five years ago, the FDA made a, a I guess a law, I mean, it's a rule, changed the uh, restaurant industry. They made the, a decision that from now on, uh, the chains, major restaurant chains, had to start putting their calorie counts of their food either online or on the menus. And so uh, if it's a local restaurant, they don't have to do that, but your pizza places, your main things should give you calorie counts. When they started talking through that, 75% of Americans in the studies they did said that would be a great idea. We love that idea. Because the thought was, as you're going into a restaurant and you're looking at the menu and you're going, man, I would like the double bacon cheeseburger. That looks really good. And you saw that it was 1,100 calories. You might also go, well, the, the grilled chicken plate. Grilled chicken plate's 500 calories. And I, I don't know if I want the double bacon cheeseburger that much more than I want the grilled chicken plate. And that you would then make the wise decision to go, you know what, I'm going to get chicken and it's going to be better for me, and it's going to be healthier. 75% of people thought it would be a great idea. Some some smaller studies, that was a a grand scale study. In some smaller studies, 84% and 93% of people in two different studies said, that is a fantastic idea, that will change what I do and change the way I eat, and will change the way that I live. So that happened in 2014. There's been studies now of how effective it's been. 31 different studies that have showed negligible to no change or no difference. That's interesting to me, but it doesn't really shock me. Um, At the beginning of the year when everybody's making resolutions and things like that, uh, five people in my home group, we decided, hey, we, we, we all agree we need to start eating a little bit better. And so we got on an app together where we would actually track our calories and we set goals. Hey, here's the number of calories that I need to eat during the day. Uh, and I'll put them in. Every time I eat, I'll put something in so that when I'm looking near the end of the day and I'm like, man, I would love some chips and salsa, and I go, well, I only have 300 calories left, I can make a wise decision and say, not going to do that. And it's actually been helpful, calories on restaurants, things like that. What's been most helpful is the accountability of knowing that, that other people are going to look and go, why were you 700 calories over what you said you were going to do? And we've got some goals of, as a whole team of we lose a certain amount of weight, then we can get a cheat day. And so now you have like the pressure of I might cost everybody else later if I eat the chips and salsa now. So, so it's been working out, but, but here's what I, I do feel it. Like I, I get that restaurant menu and I'm thinking, okay, I need to eat well and, and, and option A or option B. And what I feel like when I'm looking at that menu, you just pick the restaurant. It doesn't matter which one it is. I'm looking at option A and option B and I feel like I'm making a choice between being punched in the face or kicked in the stomach. Like, that's what, I'm like, Ugh, which one is the lesser of two evils, you know? And, and I, so I get it, because I, I want it, uh, those calorie things, but it is difficult, right? And it's not just eating. It's another thing, too. Like, we know, we know that we should exercise on a regular basis. And the first three weeks of January, every gym is full, but you could go in right now and get on any weight machine you want. I mean, we know it, but we, but we just don't do it. We know that we need a, a decent amount of sleep, seven to eight hours. We know, we know that, that that affects our emotions and our physic, physical life. And we know, we know that, but we stay up late and then we get up early, right? We know, we tell our kids, 
hey, you need less time on a screen. But yet, our lives are dominated by screens also. All right? I mean, it, it happens. We know what we need to do, but, but we have a, a difficult time doing it. You notice that the hard things in life are usually the things that are good for you, right? Say that the, the reverse way. The good things, the things that we need are difficult to accomplish. The, the easy things are usually not good for us. I mean, I wish, I wish that God had made kale to taste like cotton candy. Like, I... I be the most inc- I, I need so much kale, I, I bags of it. I mean, I, I, I would love that. I wish that the more that I worked, the more replenished I felt. I mean, I would, I would be the most productive person you know. Like, I, I would love those things. I, I, I wish that my body needed high fructose corn syrup from Dr. Pepper like it needs water, right? I mean, that would be fantastic, I, that... that Big gulp from 7-Eleven would just be the nutrients of life. That, but that's just, that's not the way it works. In our life, the things that we need, the things that are good for us, often cost us something. About the only thing that's, that costs us nothing that's good for us is, is salvation, right? I mean, salvation is a free gift to us from the Lord. We don't do anything for it. We don't work for it. It's given to us for free. But even at that, it still costs it just didn't cost us. It cost Jesus. It cost Jesus his life given up on a cross. The crucifixion is death, bought our salvation. And while we receive it as free, and it's about the only good thing I can think of that doesn't cost us anything, to really fulfill it, to live in the fulfillment of walking with Jesus, that cost. Like, it's, it's difficult. Like, it's not, your spiritual growth is not about owning Bibles. It's about reading the Bible. If it's about owning Bibles, we'd do fantastic. I mean, we've got an app on our phone that has multiple translations. We could probably go into each of our houses, even in a digital age. And what do you think? Probably in your house, we could probably find five or six or more Bibles on shelves somewhere. It's not about owning Bibles. It's about reading the Bible. It's not just about going to worship, even though that is important. And if you have kids, which... If you don't, it's kind of odd that you're in this room. But if you have kids, what the statistics tell us, research tells us, not just research tells us, that your kids have a much greater chance of taking faith with them when they become an adult if they're sitting in a multi-generational worship experience on a weekly basis and have other generations worshiping and speaking into their life. But but you know what? If, If we do that, that means we don't go to lunch until 12.30, 12.45. And it costs us something. It costs us something not just to sit in a, in, in a worship service, but to, to bring a journal with us and to take notes and to, and to write down the things that we're hearing so that we can engage. That's more difficult than sitting in the room and, and, and flipping through our agenda that's coming up for the next week and seeing what we've got ahead of us. I'm not saying those things because... I've seen you do them. I'm saying those things because I've done them, right? I mean, it's time to sit there and my, my, I'm just, my brain's out of it. And I'm doing something that's like mind candy. It's, it's the cotton candy and not the kale. And I'm doing something like that. But when, when I take a journal, I go, okay, I'm going to discipline myself to write and to engage and to focus on what's being said and what's being taught. I walk out different than I do if I just sat there for no reason. But it costs me something. It, it always costs us something. Good things do, at least. We, 
we have kids and we have even adults who on a regular basis ask the question, like, what is God's will for my life? And we want to know that. Not just teenagers going, what am I going to do for my life? Like, where should I go to college or should I go to college? And what job am I have? But for us as adults, oftentimes we're like, man, I just want to know what God has for me in the future. I want to know my next step. But here's the crazy thing is we're talking about those things and those wishes. How often has God given us something already to do? It's in the word. We've read it. We heard it in the sermon. And the Holy Spirit went, this is you. This is for you. And we just set it aside and we don't do it. And then we look at God and we go, hey, God, what's your will for my life? God, show me, what, show me what, what's next in this big decision. You ever wonder if God might be going, man, I would love to reveal to you what's next, but I've already revealed to you seven things that are for right now and you've put them to the side and you're not doing them. So why would I waste your time and my time with giving you what's next? You haven't done step one or step two and you're asking me for step seven. But somewhere along the way, our spiritual growth Understanding what God's will is for our life ends up having to be something more than just owning a Bible or showing up at church. It's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us obedience. Doing what we know we should do. It's interesting. I'm going to read you a quote. ChristianMingle.com, the dating website, which I have some friends that have been on ChristianMingle.com, and they've said it's really not very Christian uh, at all, but Uh, Lost people get on there looking for the Christian girl or Christian guy. But they asked people who were on ChristianMingle.com, not not the other dating websites. I mean, following me, this is supposed to be different. They asked them, would you have sex outside of marriage? 63% said yes. I I, I don't know what Match.com would be. ChristianMingle.com, 63% of people who are getting on there professing, I want a relationship that looks like a relationship that Jesus would want me to have. Two out of three basically say I'd have sex before marriage. Here's what Kenny Luck wrote. He said, in my 30 years of youth and adult ministry experience, this is an unfiltered, direct, and honest as a question and answer can be. In practice, Christian young adults have have become sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on that subject of any consequence, or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them and all things can also believe simultaneously he should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. So true. So true. And when we hear it in the context of sexuality, which is kind of a hot button, we go, okay, yeah, but, but what about the things that aren't hot buttons? What about the things that are just kind of your next step that God's called you to do, to, to talk to your neighbor about Jesus, to, to ask forgiveness of your kids for when you wronged them, whatever it may be. And we hear it and we know, we read it and we go, yeah, that's what God would have me do, but we just set it to the side and, and we don't do it. Here, here's what we want to walk through this week. We've been talking about the Bible for two weeks. This is week three. That when we engage the Bible and we pray through Scripture, we, we always have to come back and we have to act on what we learn to be true. We have to act on what we learn to be true. As we read the Scripture, as we sit under a pastor, as we sit in a Bible study class and we hear truth, we have to act on it and do it. I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture. So in Matthew 7, we're coming to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So 
Jesus has given us a lot of teaching, several chapters of red letters, if you're in a red letter edition of the Bible. Lots of stuff, lots of principles, lots of things for us to understand. And then in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, this is what Jesus says. He tells a story. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. There's a couple things in just reading through this passage I wanted you to hear. Some things that just stood out to me as I was reading them. And the first thing is this. We would all agree life is hard. Right, life is difficult. We know that. Uh, everybody in this room has walked through difficult times uh, at different levels of tragedy. Life is difficult. But what sometimes we forget is that life isn't just difficult in and of itself, but, but there is an enemy out there, a very real enemy. The Bible refers to him as Satan, the devil, Lucifer. And, and his goal, his desire, like his job description, if you will, is to steal from you. Like to come into your life and rob you blind, to kill you, and to destroy everything that your life touches. I mean, that, that's, that's what he does. Right now in this room, there's a spiritual war going on. When you walk out of this room and you, 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 you gather with your kids and you do whatever's next on your agenda, there's an, there's an enemy out there, a spiritual war going on, and you're the target of the war. Like, like you are, you've got a... a a bullseye on your back and a bullseye on the back of your kids. And the goal is stealing, killing, and destroying. So when Jesus says these words, and sometimes, sometimes we can read Scripture so fast we miss the picture that Jesus wants us to, to get, especially if we're familiar with the passage. But I want you to look back at verse 25. Get a mental image of, the, of what Jesus is giving. There's a house, and Jesus said, the rains fell. And what we see next gives us this idea that it's not just a sprinkle. It's a driving rain. It's hurricane force type stuff. The rain fell. The rivers rose. There's flooding. It's destruction. The winds blew. And, and, and look at the word that's translated. And it pounded the house. Like a lot of times I read this passage of Scripture and I miss the imagery that Jesus is giving us. But he's given us some very rich imagery. It's, it's, a, it's a hurricane force storm. The water's coming from the top and the water's rising from the bottom. And the wind, it says, it's pounding the house. The house is shaking. There's a chance that you're about to lose everything. And Jesus doesn't say this as if it could happen, but that it does happen and is happening and will happen. That, that, that is not just a life that's hard, but a spiritual war that's going on and you're the, you're the, you and your kids are the target. And, and because of that, Jesus, when that happens... You've got to make sure that your house is built on a solid foundation that is built on the rock. Here's the other thing that, that I, I noticed in this passage is Jesus doesn't give uh, any thought to what the house looks like. In, in the two descriptions of houses, as far as we know, they look the same. There, there's, not, there's not a description of them. They're, they're, you'd assume they're pretty similar. 
Several years ago, Amanda and I, I was trying to come with a creative date, and, and, and we did this. Yeah, yeah, try something. It was actually fun. Uh, we had a friend that's a realtor. Lots of friends are realtors, in fact. And, and they gave me a list of houses on a weekend that were going to have open houses. And my realtor friend said, actually, here's like three or four houses. These would be really cool houses to go look at, like some expensive ones. Uh, some ones that like the living room cost as much as your house. And uh, so we did that. We just went and we drove around. We found some kind of an area and we went and just pre- pretended like we were like looking for a house. And um, so we go in and, and it was really fun because people's, I mean, the houses are always nice because they're trying to sell them. Um, but you see different decor. You, you just see the way houses are built. And I don't know, that may be boring to you, but it was fun for us. And we went in, uh, the, our, our realtor friend said, now listen, there's going to be some agents at those houses. And if you do this, they're going to like, they're going to hit you up and like, you know, want to talk to you and things like that. And so one of the things that we did in our date, this is just free. This has nothing to do with the message. But uh, I just told Amanda, I said, we're, we've got to come up with a story uh, for every house that we go into um, that will avoid us from having to have long conversations with the realtor. Because we didn't want to say, oh, we're just wasting your time. We're just on a date. We have no intention of buying. Thanks for giving your Saturday to sit here. Uh, so like I had stories like um, that I had created an app that would uh, help Vegas uh, give a 97% win rate of any game and that about to come into millions, but I can't really talk more about it because it's still pending. So we're just going to look. I had a whole story about how I was ratting out a cartel in Mexico. And so we're being relocated. I had lost stories. Really excited about it. The sad thing was not one realtor at the open house cared. They're like, how are y'all doing today? Great. And I'm thinking, okay, this will be the cartel story. And they're like, let me know if you need anything. Okay, I don't. And uh, so I didn't tell any of my stories. But walked around looking at those houses, fun. But you know what, what you don't do, what we didn't do, and what you don't do when you're just like, you know, shopping a house? You don't, you don't step outside and go, check out this foundation. Well, hey, that's a, that's a good looking foundation right there. Yeah, I like, I can see what they did there. Looks like they did a little extra work on that foundation. You don't do that. Now, if you're going to buy the house, you're probably going to do some work on the inspection on the foundation. But on our date, that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the exteriors. We're looking at what it looks like. And here's what Jesus basically lets us know. The exterior of the house is irrelevant. What your life looks like, what you present to other people, really doesn't matter when the storm comes. What really matters is if your life is rooted on the foundation. If Jesus Christ's words are what has locked your house down, that's what matters. Here's another thing that, that I notice in looking at this. Jesus, we miss it without knowing some backstory. Jesus is expressing his divinity in this passage. There was a common rabbinic teaching during those times that sounded very similar to this. The rabbis would teach about how your, your life or your home needed to be rooted on the foundation of the Torah, which is the Old Testament. But Jesus takes this idea that people had heard before, and this is what Jesus says. Look back at verse 24. He says, everyone, not who reads the Torah, but everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man. What we miss is Jesus right now in this moment said, hey, the Torah is important, and Jesus is going to teach from the Old Testament on a regular basis. But Jesus says, what I'm going to tell you supersedes any other Pharisee's description of what the the word says. Jesus is never going to contradict the Torah, but the way he interprets it and the way he explains it 
is as if, not as if, it is God giving his explanation of his word. So there's several things in this passage. We see Jesus makes a very clear statement that, that I am God. And the last thing that stood out to me in this really comes from the next couple of verses. Look at verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. I grabbed a hold of that because I realized how often I, we, can be astonished by the teachings of Jesus, amazed. We hear a message and we go, oh, that was really good. But Jesus, in this very passage, wasn't asking them to be amazed. He was asking them to be obedient. He wasn't asking them to be wowed by what he said. He was asking them to do something about it. And that's where we land this week as we wrap up this foundation series. Is that if we want to grow spiritually, if we want to disciple our kids in our home, reading the Bible is absolutely indispensable. Absolutely indispensable. It's got to be a rhythm inside your family crafted discipleship plan that you, you look at the scripture together as a family. It's got to be. But that's not the end of the line. It's not just about raising biblically literate kids. I would love to see a lot more biblically literate kids. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Biblical literacy is tantamount to the next generation succeeding and following Christ. But, but the word I just used was follow, not know, not learn. We've got to raise up a generation of kids who not just know the word, but that do it also. That, that, that's the key to spiritual growth. You know what you call someone who knows a lot of Scripture and doesn't do it? Jesus called them Pharisees. Actually, they were called Pharisees. Jesus called them snakes. <laughs> they had all the head knowledge. They, they, they knew the Bible studies. They had Scripture memory, but their life wasn't living it. They weren't doing it. And that's one of the missing pieces that we, we've got to not just lean into our kids, but for ourselves, have to go, okay, I hear the word. Now my next step is to receive it and to do something about it. It's got to change me. I've got to walk out different than I walked in because I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and his word, and it is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it will pierce joint and marrow, and it will literally change me if I'll do it. And then, you know, you don't have to start, at, you, you'll, honestly, this, you'll stop asking God, what's your will for my life? Because you'll be so busy trying to keep up with God's will for your life and head in the direction that he's going. You won't be thinking about where you're going, you'll just be doing. So how do you, how do you help people find an application and a message that's about finding application? That, that's, that's what we're talking about, applying scripture. I want to give you one thing, and, and it's this. And, and you could ask your kids to do this with you. I'll tell you a story about my kids. It's kind of been a, it's been a win for us. Um, but anytime, here's your application for this message. Here, here's what you can do so that you can do, if you will. When you walk into a service in a few minutes and you walk across the street, or next Sunday morning when you walk into this room, or if you go to a Bible study sometime during the week, or if you open up your Bible for a quiet time or devotional or whatever it would be, 
I want to encourage you to, to make this a rhythm in your life. As you walk into service, as you walk in here, before you open up the word on your own, just ask this question of the Lord. Lord, would you just show me the one thing you have for me? Lord, show me one thing. One thing that I either need to think differently about. Okay, show me one thing that I need to hear today that's going to encourage me in where I'm going. Well, God, show me one thing today that I'm going to do, that I'm going to apply, that I'm going to implement my life when I walk out of the room. Now, a lot of times, Michael does this. I know when I, when, when I teach, I have to bring a message. Like a lot of times, I, I offer up multiple different application ideas. The goal has never been for you to take all three application ideas and go, I got to do this, this, and this. Okay, I got to do these three things this week. And then I'm going to open up my Bible tomorrow morning and do my devotional. I'm going to ask God for, for, to give me one thing. He's going to give me a thing. And I'm going to do that on Tuesday and then Wednesday. And I'm going to go to Wednesday night Bible study and ask the Lord for that. And then Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And over the course of a week, I've got 10 things now that I've, that I've got to do. And 10 things the next week. And 10 things. That's not the goal. The goal is simply asking the Lord, what's the one thing? And you know what? You might find that one thing, and again, it might not be something you do. It might be just something that's encouraging, or it might be something simple, or it might be something that you go, you know what, Lord, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that. I'm going to continue to pray about that, but right now I'm working on this one thing that you've given me right now. And you say, Lord, just give me some clarity, because I did ask for one thing you gave it to me, but you also gave me a one thing three weeks ago that I've been working through in a struggle. Am I done with this one thing and on to the next thing? Am I on to my next step? And the Lord goes, no, you just... You keep walking and working on that step that you're on. But there should be something at all times that God is doing in your life. Because as you engage a scripture, there's things that he's going to reveal to you and say, hey, this is what you need to do now. But so often we come into a Bible study, we come into a service, we open up our Bible with no intention. Not, not, not because we didn't want to, but we came with no intention of, of actually finding something that was going to change our lives. And then we're confused of why our growth is stagnant. So I told you I'd tell you a story. In family discipleship and stuff, I'm telling you a story right now that's a win. Um, trust me when I say this, I could tell you lots of stories that are losses. I, I tell people all the time. Like I, I, I've kicked my own children out of family devotional time so many times I can't count. And people go, wait, what? You kicked your kids out of devotional time? That's better than killing a kid. Always. <laughs> Removing them from the situation is better than ending their life. So yeah, it's been like, just, too, just so frustrating. Okay, you're, you're out. And then looking at the other one, you want to be out too or do you want to read the Bible with us? <laughs> Open up your Bible. I mean, I've been there. Had a win though, two weeks ago. I, I've been asking my kids. I've got a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old. I've been asking them uh, on Saturday nights. I, actually, I mean, I have it in my phone calendar. Remind me to ask them because it's important to me. Hey, put your journal out. Bring something so you can take notes. A couple weeks ago, we were sitting and we were just having some time as a family. And I told my, my 13-year-old, I said, listen, every, every time I look over to the youth section, like where you're sitting, like I, I, every time I look over, like 100% of the time, your head's down looking at your phone. And not only that, but your two girlfriends on either side of you are looking over at your phone too. So not, not, now it's not just you, but you're distracting other people. And I said, I'm not taking your phone yet you got to figure out how to manage it. 
And so I said, listen, here's what I'm asking you guys to do. I've been talking about taking a journal, and they, they, they forget every, every Sunday. I said, hey, did you take your journal? Oh, I forgot. I said, take your journal, not whatever. Here's what I want to ask you to do, and I asked them to do this. During the sermon, I, I just want you to find one thing that, that you think God may be saying to you, one thing that you found interesting. So can, can we do that? And everybody agreed. So that next morning, I was at, uh, went out to the Liberty Hill campus and, and worshiped out there to be out there. And, and so people from our home group said, hey, we're going to meet you all for lunch, and, and we'll meet uh, at a restaurant kind of halfway in between. Actually, halfway between. It's like 200 yards from the Liberty Hill campus. So I get there early. I'm the first one. I'm sitting there. I'm waiting. The door opens to the restaurant. Again, this is a win. doesn't have all the time. My 13-year-old comes, run, like, like, not running, but walking in fast, sits down and goes, hey, do you want to hear my one thing? And I was like, well, yeah, not now. We're about to have lunch, like, with everybody. Like, I uh, want to discuss. She goes, okay, okay, tonight? And I said, well, tonight we're going to be at the Super Bowl party. Um, so we're not, but, but Monday night, we're going to sit down here, so, so keep it. And, like, and I'm, like, feeling bad. I'm like, am I, like, am I, yeah, she's got so much, like, I want to tell you about it. I wanted to share it with everybody. Right behind that comes the nine-year-old. You want to hear one thing? And I said, we're going to do it Monday night. Okay, okay. So we go to Super Bowl, Super Bowl party, Monday. I'm sitting on my couch. It's about 7 o'clock. My nine-year-old's in the other room watching some TV. And so I just kind of yelled out there, but hey, at 7.30, we're going to gather and we're going to talk about the one thing. My nine-year-old jumps off the bed and goes sprinting towards her room. And I said, hey, 7.30, you can finish your show. And she's like, oh, okay. And I thought, this is such a win. They're like, both of them, like, want to talk about spiritual things. Like, like I'm not going to say this on Wednesday night because it would, it would embarrass one of my children. But I've actually said to my other child, like, I've seen you roll your eyes at Jesus more than anybody I know. Like, uh, and they're both, like, excited about this. And I'm like, this is great. So we sit down, and they both, they both pull out a journal, and they both start talking about more than one thing, but just talking about the things they wrote down. And I was like, okay, that's a win. And so we've tried to start to create that rhythm in our house of what's your one You could do that too. Not just as a discipleship tool for your kids, but what's your one thing for you? Not looking to get 30 things in a week, but just that there's always one thing that we're working on. There's a story that goes back to the old days, frontier days. Community was logging community, and they'd settled by a river where there was, they could start building this logging business. And um, shortly after the the area began to settle, they, they built a church. And they called a pastor, and the pastor came, and he began pastoring the people of this logging community. And one day, the pastor was out visiting parishioners and some people. There. He was out in, in the woods where they're cutting down trees, and he noticed that some people were floating logs down the river from a community further up the river. And the people living in his community were taking the logs out of the river, and the logs had been stamped by a company that was further up the river. And they were taking the saws and they were cutting off the ends where the stamp was and getting rid of them and, and stealing the logs. And the pastor was grieved by it. And so he went to church the next Sunday and he preached a sermon about thou shalt not steal to the people. And after church, as he was standing by the door, as people were leaving, everybody's walking by and going, Pastor, it was a great sermon. It was a great word. Loved it. Incredible. Great, great teaching. He went home and he thought, well, this is odd. Some incredible life change pretty quickly. Paid attention the next week and saw the same thing happening. So the next Sunday, he preached the very same text 
But he changed the sermon. It wasn't thou shalt not steal. He changed it. He said thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not cut the ends off your neighbor's logs. And they ran him out of town. We don't want to be that type of church. We don't want to be that type of person that when the Lord gives us a word that gives us truth, that we dismiss it. We want to act on it. I'll share with you one last interesting story. There's a company in Tulsa, um, Oklahoma. You know, the Midwest is known for tornadoes and high winds. And the company was uh, building homes. And what they do is they build your home. You had an option. You could upgrade your home. And they would, they would build a tornado-proof room in your home so that if a tornado came, you had kind of a, a shelter to go to. And they would design it where when, it, you know, when there wasn't a tornado, it could, you could, you, it could be a closet for you. It could be a bathroom. It could be whatever you wanted to use it for. Now, the upgrade to make the tornado-proof room was $2,500. That, that, was, that was all cost upgrade from what they were doing to reinforce it. Everybody said, yes, yeah, yeah, we can do that. $2,500 onto an expensive house, that's nothing. Yes, 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 yes. Tenth couple that they talked to said no. So now instead of giving us the tornado-proof house, tornado-proof room, uh, we want you to install a hot tub. It's interesting. But the tenth couple is also 75 years old. And so, you know... <laughs> They figure, what do we need with a tornado-proof room? If a tornado comes, we're going to see Jesus no matter what. We'll live out our last few days in the hot tub. I don't know if that's wise, but if I was 75, I'd probably get the hot tub too. Here's the question that we have to wrestle with. How are we building our house? Jesus gave us a very clear definition of how to tornado-proof our house. He said, you build it on the rock. And I'll read it to you one more time. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be a wise man. Hearing and acting, reading and doing. So your takeaway is this week, anytime you're going to open the word, ask, Lord, what's the one thing you want me to see here? And then go do something about it. And pray for us and give you some time to talk. Lord, thank you for... Your word, I thank you for the parables in which you teach. Thank you that you give us pictures for our mind to imagine and see how destruction, what it can look like, but also how our our house, our life can be built to avoid destruction. Lord, I pray that you'd help us find one thing that we can believe different, be encouraged by, or do different every time we encounter your word. As in Jesus' name we pray, amen.